This is Counsel for Life, a podcast engaging conversations about mental health and the Christian life with licensed biblical counselors Beth Broom and Eliza Huey. Welcome back to Counsel for Life. I'm Eliza. And I'm Beth. And we are really excited to share with you today's episode because it's a kind of a part two. And uh, it's a part two to an episode that is right now by far the most listened to episode of all of our episodes from this first season of uh, Counsel for Life. And that episode was episode 33, where we talked about uh, can what can Christians learn or, or what, what sh- how should Christians think about secular psychology? So if you didn't listen to that episode 33, you're going to want to listen to it, go back and listen to it, but this is kind of a part two. And so we are really thrilled to have Nate Brooks back with us. Nate is the assistant professor of Christian counseling at Reform Theological Seminary, and he is also the founder and director, uh, executive director of Courage Christian Counseling, which is his own private practice. And we are going to have that link in the show notes that we would strongly encourage you to just go check out his website, learn a little bit more about what he does uh, in that in that area. But Nate, thank you so much for coming back on to our podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a little while since you asked. And so specifically, as we think of secular psychology and its modalities, I want you to maybe share um, what are some different approaches or schools of thought in the area of secular psychology? Because just like biblical counseling, there's different approaches that we can have. So I thought it'd be helpful first if you just kind of expanded that a little bit and just speak to that some to our listeners. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. So, you know, when we think of secular psychology, really what's meant there, there's, there's all kinds of different sorts of psychology, right? Mm-hmm. So, there's, there's descriptive psychology where there's uh, simply the observations of how human beings tend to uh, behave and think uh, in given uh, contexts. Uh, there's clinical psychology. Uh, what we talk about, though, when we usually meet, uh, what we're usually talking about when we think of uh, secular psychology, we're usually thinking about different uh, psychotherapeutic approaches towards transformation, mm-hmm. right? So, so names that would come to mind perhaps might be Sigmund Freud mm-hmm. and psychoanalysis, where there is a theory of human change, a theory of human trouble, and a theory of how human beings kind of grow past their troubles mm-hmm. uh, embedded inside of Freudianism. Uh, you right. know, another one may be Carl Rogers' mm-hmm. uh, unconditional positive regard, right? Yeah. He believed that inside of every human being is locked goodness, and the therapist's responsibility is to help birth that goodness into the world, uh, but, but not by adding anything, but rather by cultivating an environment where the person is totally safe, totally secure, and totally loved, regardless of what they do, mm-hmm. uh, because that's going to provide the necessary nutrients for transformation. And so, you know, those are two kind of older schools of thought. More modern schools of thought would be things like cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. the, under, uh, you know, the, the belief that uh, kind of central to human troubles are maladaptive beliefs, mm-hmm. and that transformation occurs when maladaptive beliefs are uh, replaced by more functional or adaptive beliefs. Uh, you have something like uh, ACT therapy, well, ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. Right. Um, 
that's not that's going to kind of back off of that idea and say, well, actually, our beliefs are are kind of hard to change those core beliefs. So instead, what we need to do is change our relationship to those those thoughts that occur to those beliefs Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of more emphasize instead of trying to change a maladaptive belief, say I am having a maladaptive belief Mm -hmm. uh, be activated right now, but that's not the same thing as that maladaptive belief being true. Mm -hmm. And then you have other things such as, you know, uh, more of a a family systems approach that would Mm -hmm. focus on triangulation, enmeshment, differentiation, things of that nature. And then of course, within kind of each of these different modalities, you also have, uh, different schools of thought, different approaches by different practitioners. So, when we say secular psychology, we're actually talking about a a wide array of different interpretations of human trouble. I think when we say secular psychology, we're simply identifying this isn't sourced from a Christian worldview, Right. uh, that the people who are coming up with this do not have redemption at the core of how people are transformed. Indeed, uh, either all or certainly most uh, would perhaps even be ignorant of the fact that we have souls as human beings, Mm -hmm. Uh, but rather they're different. so So, they're secular, but they're different approaches to transformation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what one of the things that you're you're sharing it sounds like is that we're thinking about it's important to think about kind of what's at the bottom, like what mm-hmm. what is a an understanding of what human nature is, what the human soul is, how change mm-hmm. occurs, and then that creates kind of the groundwork upon which mm-hmm. those modalities spring up and are birthed and give give way to change and that sort of thing. So that's, that's really helpful. Said. Yeah, it's a helpful way to put it. Thank you for that. And they, even when you talk about like Freudianism and or Freud and Carl Rogers, we even though they're way back, and they're way back, but they still have an influence. You know, when mm-hmm. you think of even like Rogerian uh, schools of thought, like we wouldn't have Oprah Winfrey show if we didn't have like a Rogerian mindset of of humanity. Really, like yeah. that that approach that ultimately there's good inside of everybody. It just needs to be unlocked. And so you, it's important. We might think, oh, that's a long time ago. Secular psychology has changed, but the thoughts do continue to influence mm-hmm. today. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah about, and I wanted. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you're fine. About ten years ago, for instance, uh, the American Psychological Association did a survey of its members mm-hmm. uh, in order to see who is the single most influential therapist for you as you go about your own approach towards therapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Carl Rogers was listed as number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe number that. Number two was uh, Aaron Beck uh, mm-hmm. for cognitive behavioral therapy. But mm-hmm. like you're saying, even though Aaron Rodgers has, uh, you know, passed away and mm-hmm. uh, no, there's very few people who practice kind of pure Rogerian therapy anymore. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. ideas continue uh, to kind of have children of their own and be influential. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to just back up and touch on something else that you said, and this might be a rabbit trail. We'll see what we do, how we do with it. But you, you mentioned when you first spoke, you said there's descriptive psychology and then there's sort of this how people change and kind of like the, the outworkings of the various modalities. So can you just lean in just, just a little bit about descriptive psychology? What is that? What's maybe helpful or important about it? Oh, sure. So, uh, 
inside my theology and secular psychology class that I teach at RTS, uh, I actually have my students listen or watch uh, about a 10-minute clip from a, a movie called uh, The Experimenter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's a movie about uh, the, the Milgram experience, uh, experiments, which were uh, kind of a, a famous set of experiments done on uh, kind of ge- just the general American population by mm-hmm. uh, Milgram, the experimenter. And what, that, uh, what he sought to do in his experiments was to see uh, kind of the levels of, of empathy and compassion that individuals had when they knew they were inflicting pain on somebody. Mm. So he set up this famous experiment where uh, he had a, he supposedly had two volunteers. Now, one of the volunteers was a plant, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) the the person who was the plant would be locked inside of a room Mm -hmm. and uh, attached to an electrode. Uh, Mm -hmm. That would provide a shock, supposedly, Mm -hmm. right? It was all fake. Uh, And then the person who was actually being experimented on was supposed to read a series of words to the individual and then administer an electric shock uh, to that individual if they got it wrong. And the electric shocks would continue to go up. Uh, And and the overwhelming uh, percentage of uh, of his subjects continued to administer the electric shocks even after it was indi- even after the person starts screaming in pain, begging for them to stop, mm-hmm. even points where it says XXX danger on the mm-hmm. panel, still <laughs> continue to do it because they were told by the individual uh, who was you know running the thing, you must continue, you have no choice. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was uh, kind of a shocking experiment for the American population. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> right. It, uh, it came out of Milgram's desire to, to understand how is it that the German population went along with the Holocaust, and he thought that Americans. Right. To be really different, and it maybe proved that we weren't quite as different as we thought we were, wow. uh, and, and and so it was highly controversial. But that's an example of descriptive or observational psychology, right? How do human beings tend to react in given situations? Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I do think it's a helpful distinction that there's kind of these. And, and I think last, team, last time we had you, you talked about sort of upstream versus downstream kinds of things in terms of psychology. And that's, that's just helpful language for us to recognize. Mm-hmm. We don't have to lump it all into one huge pot. There's, there's variables. And so that leads me to my next question, Nate. Um, so, so how do you think about this idea of potentially piecemealing or like pulling various things from a certain modality, potentially even a secular modality, into uh, your practice or into our practice as biblical counselors? Um, And I know that's a big question, but like, can that even happen? Can you kind of have a piecemeal approach? Can you pull things from here and there? Or would that be a tainting of what Mm -hmm. we do? What do you think? That's a great question. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I think that pushes us to ask the question, what is counseling? Hmm. And counseling as a discipline is really broad. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, in a given week, I may talk with someone about finances. Mm -hmm. I may talk with someone who has suffered horrific trauma. And I might talk with someone who is trying to work through grief over the death of a loved one, mm-hmm. right? Those are three really different kind of mm-hmm. uh, situations. And, and so we've got to understand counseling is a pretty broad kind of field. Um, but then inside of you know counseling itself, as we think of how we go about counseling, th- there's even different aspects to the counsel that we give. 
So, as a biblical counselor, I would say that at the core of my counseling, redemption is always the center, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I am seeking the personal growth, sanctification of my counselee. If they're not a believer, uh, I counsel as a Christian, and I long to see them be reconciled to God. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the only thing we talk about. I don't stop and simply, you know, do an evangelist presentation and say, you in or you out, buddy, Uh, (laughs) right? But we uh, right. We're, we're focused on redemption, but there's also the question of how do we go about achieving those ends, mm-hmm. right? Um, there are things that are content oriented that that are only derived from special revelation, right? That we only get from scripture, uh, namely everything related to redemption. But then the question of how do we go about situating that in someone's life? You know, we, we have to recognize that the Bible speaks many different languages mm-hmm. about how that occurs. So, um, so these different systems of psychotherapy, they also tend to speak different languages. And even though the core of every system is uh, not, you know, isn't Christian, like we mentioned last time, these ideas become sticky because uh, there's some, they capture something true yeah, about they, humanity. Mm-hmm. They so help think about in some, some ways. That's right. right. We think about something like cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, I, I think that the I actually wrote my PhD dissertation on why the essential mechanism of change inside of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is incorrect. Simply changing our thoughts is not going to change the truest aspects of who we are because James uh, 4, 17, 19. 17 says somewhere it says uh, in James. Yeah. 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 <laughs> James chapter four, somewhere in that neighborhood, it says uh, to the one who knows to do good and doesn't do it, he sins. So mm-hmm. we can actually have transformed thoughts and still not do what's right. Why? Right. Because our affections are involved and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Right. However, yeah. does CBT accurately describe the fact that thought change is essential for human transformation? Yes. Is there plenty of research they've done on how human beings tend to code thoughts and incorporate them into their overall belief structures? Well, yes, absolutely. And so, you know, every single one of these systems is capturing some element of truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, I under- as I look at it, uh, when you take kind of one facet of human transformation, and then load all of your chips into just that element. Right. You're going to study that element really in depth. Mm-hmm. And maybe in a way that a lot of biblical counselors aren't. Like I haven't done as detailed study of how is it that thoughts actually uh, actually are part of kind of the chain of human behavior, thinking, belief, identity, etc. That, you know, someone like an Aaron Beck has. But right. he's loaded all of change into that. And so, there's quite right. a bit that I can actually learn, I think, discerningly, using the Bible as my lens through which to view things. I wouldn't agree with everything he says. But in terms of how human beings tend to uh, receive data, code it, and then respond, and then go back and recode it, right. that's actually pretty helpful. So, let me ask you a question then, just getting very personal then. So, do you, as a biblical counselor, um, utilize some of those things in your biblical counseling yeah, uh, so I do a lot of I do a lot of counseling uh, related to trauma recovery, mm-hmm. trauma and abuse recovery. It's, it seems like kind of the lane that the Lord has placed me in a lot. Um, so I would be quick to say one of the one of the strategies that I will use is uh, systematic desensitization. 
Okay. Right. So systematic desensitization is the uh, is is uh, exposing a individual to the thing that they are afraid of mm-hmm. in small doses, ever increasing, so that they're able to experience the fact that they they're butting up against the thing that causes them anxiety. They don't implode. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to kind of increase doses, if you will. So we'll often start sitting in my office. So, so say we're just talking with an individual who's afraid of taking an elevator mm-hmm. down. Um, we'll start by thinking in my office about the process of uh, what is it like for you to imagine yourself getting on an elevator, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to cause their heart rate to increase. And, 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 and then we'll move from, and then we'll move from that to go up, to, walk up to the elevator in our office, push the button. Stand there for a second and then go use the stairs, mm-hmm. you know, walk up to it, push the button, step in, step back out, use the stairs, mm-hmm. walk up to it, push the button, step in, ride one flight, get out, go down. Right. And mm-hmm. just kind of wisely desensitize them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? That's that's a positive good. If we're thinking in Westminster confession categories, that's called civic righteousness, where you mm-hmm. have an individual who is restored to better functioning. It's better for everybody. It's right. better for, if they live at the top or if they work at the top of a hundred story tower, it's good for their family, for them to be able to ride the elevator because they don't have to wake up two hours earlier to climb a hundred flight of stairs. Exactly. It's better for the Uber Uber driver who now doesn't have to worry <laughs> if the person's deodorant held or not. Right. Like it's, I mean, it's good for everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's good for, it's good for his employer. But the thing is, as a biblical counselor, I'm, that's not where I stop. I'm not mm-hmm. focused on just the desensitization and just right. the reduction of anxiety. I'm actually equipping them uh, to put that within the framework of God's world. Yeah. Namely, I, I do not need to be anxious because God is right. with me, even if what happens, yes. even if what happens, uh, that even if what I'm afraid of happens uh, because he's with me, right? So, whether that's the recitation of, you know, a, a centuries-old pair, prayer, uh, St. Patrick's breastplate, right? Christ before me, Christ behind mm-hmm. me, Christ at my left hand, Christ at my right, Christ within me, Christ within all those around me, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that, the Christians have found a lot of refuge in, of meditating on that and drawing our thoughts towards God of, this is part of obedience to God, right? Yeah. Or, or a particular scripture to hold, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And that includes as I push this button for the elevator that causes me a deep amount of anxiety and situating within the fact of, no, actually what you're doing is you're obeying the biblical command to discipline your body and make it your slave. Yeah. Right. That's, and I'm thankful for secular researchers who have studied systematic desensitization. It has a roughly 80% rate of, uh, of clinically significant reduction in anxiety symptoms without any kind of biblical content in it. And I'm just going to say, if that's how, uh, secular therapy can, can, can work, how much more biblical counseling? Exactly. And that's exactly. not incompatible with the Christian worldview at all. In fact, right. that is a truth that common grace has helped us see. And uh, we are foolish if we don't incorporate the truths that common grace helps us see, because that truth is given to humanity by God. Well, and I think the thing that's so important for us to kind of emphasize here is that um, you are taking what people have spent a lot of, their, like you said, you know, they've poured their life into research and study and whatnot and how to help people, but they are missing something. They don't go far enough. But I think sometimes that can be true of biblical counselors in a different way. Like we definitely want to, when we have somebody who has that kind of fear, we want them to hold on to those truths. And so we can sometimes say that's where we, that's, that's, 
that is our main focus. That's all we need to do when their body is screaming against this, you know? And so I think that's where I feel like Yes, we can incorporate what we have learned. We can include what we've mm-hmm. learned from these people who have studied uh, what it means to move into that, the somatic response that your body has when you move into that and how how slow steps can actually desensitize that. And even what we can then do to address the body in those moments as well, because you can start to incorporate other ways of, of actually, instead of just addressing the mind and the heart, you can address the physical response to mm-hmm. pushing that button as well. And so- yeah, I think it's important for us to see that that can that can, you know, be included in a way that that allows us to then also take it further. You know, it doesn't allow us. I mean, we do it. We take it further. We take it further because we recognize that ultimately behavioral change is not our goal. It's heart mm-hmm. change. We want that person not to trust that I can do it. I can do it, but that the Lord is with me. The Lord is is faithful and is He's my helper through whatever it is that I face. Yeah. How scary it is. So, yeah. And like you've said, Eliza, you know, we are, I guess, to use a technical theological word, we are psychosomatic unities, mm-hmm. right? We are, we are, we are body and soul. My body is me. I am more than my body, but my mm-hmm. body is me. And my heart is me, but I'm also more than just my heart, right? We're, we're psychosomatic unities. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, e- even the term soul care can sometimes have a little bit of a danger to it, right? Where we, we think that if, if we simply, as the only thing we have available, is to take God's special revelation and say, this is everything we need for counseling, and we don't need anything beyond this uh, in order to offer the most holistic form of care. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we've actually cut ourselves off from some of the truth that God would want us to have. So, for example, like mm. the Bible never tells us that smiling is a sign of favor. It mm-hmm. mentions smiling and it mentions the fact that God smiles on us, but it never specifically says that smiling is a sign of favor, right? That's an observation. Mm-hmm. That then that enhances how we read the Bible, and there's a, a the, the the Dutch theologian um, Herman Bavink strongly argues that uh, that uh, general revelation and special revelation. I'm sorry, no, I said that wrong. Uh, common grace and special revelation have a symbiotic relationship, and how okay. we need to be able to observe the world in our humanness mm-hmm. to unfold the riches of the Bible. So, yeah. so, such as that when we say, say God smiles upon us, then that means that he is well pleased with us. Um, and yet at the same time, that special revelation provides us the glasses with which to f- even see or understand how God may smile on us. Mm-hmm. Good. I love that. So, it does and, kind of speak to that we can, we can take pieces of this. Mm-hmm. We can learn from this in a way that actually continues to move us back to where does, what does the scripture how does the scripture speak to this? Um, maybe not directly, like you said, but certainly there it's implied in a lot of ways or alluded to, but I, I love that. Yeah. Okay. So we are, man, it's always so rich. It was rich last time. It was rich again to be able to hear from you, Nate, and the time flies by. So we're almost out of time. Um, and we really, really appreciate having you with us. We're definitely going to uh, want to do this again, for sure. Um, whatever we can whatever we can gain from you, we want to gain and we want our listeners to gain. So thank you so much for, for just your willingness to, to talk about these things. And we'll keep talking about them because obviously our listeners find them, these things very, very helpful. 
Oh, I find that I learn things talking with you all every time I'm here as well. So feeling certainly mutual. Well, listeners, we hope that you've been encouraged or at least you're, you've been um, provoked to kind of think more deeply about these things and um, to learn more about what it means to understand that there is there are schools of thought out there that we don't have to be uh, fearful, fearful of. We need to go into it wisely and like like Nate had said, you know, looking at where the scripture speaks to these things and letting this, looking at them through the lens of scripture, but we can learn from a lot of these uh, different secular psychology methods or, or schools of thought. So hope this has been helpful for you. And we look forward to you all joining us again for another episode of Council for Life. Thanks for listening to Council for Life with Beth Broom and Eliza Huey. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please be sure to rate, share, and subscribe. And for more information, visit counselforlifepodcast.com.